What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Jared Gustat, CEO of AudioUp. He's the former founder of Jingle Punks, and he's known as Jingle Jared. You may have seen him walking around Real Screen years ago with his jumpsuits and his 10-gallon cowboy hat and seeing the advertisements for Jingle Punks in the urinals and bathrooms back in the day at the conferences. He's that guy. And he is a larger-than-life character. He is an innovator. He saw a white space in the market when it came to music in the unscripted world. And he benefited off it. And he benefited his partners off of it. Brent Montgomery briefly mentioned Jared in the episode that I did with him. Uh, And we talked about AudioUp and what he is building with the future of audio content and podcasting and the cross-section of narrative and music It's fantastic. This is a great episode for all the aspiring entrepreneurs out there. This is my sit down with Jared Gustat. I hope you enjoy it. All right. So confession. Yes. The podcast is called Unscripted and Unprepared, but I actually overprepare for these things. And I did a little diligence and I came across a TED talk you gave years back. And I was watching this TED talk, Jared, and I was like, oh my God, are me and Jared best friends? And I never, and I never knew it because the conceit and the premise of this TED talk was so right up my alley. Tell tell the audience what this premise was, because really it seems like the best way to get into the whole story of your career. It was um, when you're at a crossroads or a fork in the road, you just gotta ask yourself, what would Weird Al do? And it was like a summary of my business ethos, my, you know, uh, I think a really great uh, mission statement of how I live my life of like, there's so many people trying to like be this. And I was like, Weird Al has somehow made everything that's in and around his career and his life and his brand last so much longer by like just being Weird Al and like, you know, like <laughs> instead of trying to be the coolest guy in the room, just be you. Well, is, is, it, is it that Weird Al... You just saw him as an innovator because he zagged when everybody else was going one direction. He decided, hey, I can put my own stamp, but also drift off of what's popular. What What is it about Weird Al that made it him was, an inspiration? It was, it, I love the idea of like how things get marketed, how you discover things, where do, where do ideas come from? And somehow in the 80s, you know, there was this guy who, you know, had probably like the weirdest, like seemingly bizarre idea of like, this is how I'm going to enter into the music business. I'm going to take people's favorite songs and then just like say silly words over them. And it worked. And, you know, like, so for every idea out there that someone's going to like poop all over, there's someone out there who's actually executing it at the highest level and winning. And, you know, when I think the, the three examples that I had were, you know, almost anything can seem like a waste of time if you listen to the people around you. Um, and, you know, we were told by the people at Real Screen this one time that, like, you know, we can advertise them. We saw the bill for, like, what it was going to cost to, like, do the gold or the silver or the bronze package. We're like, no, there's no way we can afford this. And like, but we also have the toilets. And I was like, yes, that's like a what would Weird Al do thing? Because it was like not expensive, highly visible. Everyone has to go to the bathroom, <laughs> you know, like. You're actually like, talking about putting Jingle Punks, which was your company at the time, putting Jingle Punks, what? Like, like literally de- like decals. People urinate on in the toilet and people could like you target practice using like, <laughs> it was one year, like our logo, one year was my face. And like, at first I was like, man, this is really stupid. I wonder if anyone's going to like, and I got to the conference and people were like, going up the escalator going i just peed on your face mate and i was like yes it's working <laughs> but like there's all these like weird like marketing opportunities that that presented themselves that i talked about in the ted talk and if you know if anyone's out there and they just want to look at it just type what would weird al do jared gets that but it ultimately that philosophy ended up you know leading me down a path where not only did our business get discovered but you know, ultimately put us on the radar of some pretty big and important people, um, resulting in a a pretty massive uh, deal with Yahoo and, you know, steps along the way that got me to the step that ultimately helped me sell the company um, and exit the business. But, 
you know, I think most people when they go into music or, you know, or into the world of entrepreneurism, they're reading the books of like Steve Jobs or, you know, the Beatles and my Ava Geffen. Yeah. Anything like that. Like the Geffen book's incredible, frightening, but, uh, the, you know, for me, and by the way, you got Marty short back there. That's a good, Oh, I got my books. Yeah. I got my books. Have you read, have you read the, in the end, the Beatles book? No. When did that come out? It's, it came out a few years ago. It's extremely dense. So I don't necessarily suggest it because it's kind of textbook ish, but the, the premise is amazing just because you're a music guy. The premise is every chapter is one month in the last year of the Beatles as they were breaking up as they're doing, as they're doing the, the get back, the let it be album and doing Abbey road and disintegrating. So it's, it's a, it's a deep dive into the last year of the Beatles. Oh, I love that. I can't wait for the documentary, Peter Jackson. Oh my God, bro. I, it's, my whole, I, it's my Thanksgiving plan. I know. It's like, I have stuff, I have something to look forward to this, uh, the holidays. Like I don't interrupt when I watch that, but I don't want to, I don't want to get off track though, because you were, you mentioned Melissa Meyer. And before we get into the whole origin story, yeah. let's talk about that. Like you saw another opportunity to get, because part of the weird Al thing you yeah. talked about in the Ted talk was getting how to get noticed. Notice. So to, like, yeah. I, um, dare to be know, stupid. I, yeah. I dare to be stupid. I read, uh, an article, uh, where it was a small news piece, but a bunch of people forwarded it to me and it was like, Oh, the CEO of Yahoo hates her old music. Like, Jared, you got to do something. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, that's easy for me to do something, but like, who's going to notice, who's going to care. And I hit our PR person. I said, look, I'm going to write like the world's dumbest hold message hold song. So when you call Yahoo, like Snow, the informer from like the nineties, again, but like I wrote a song, he tracked it in Toronto. It was like this perfect moment of like, wait, okay, hold on. Why Snow? How did, okay. okay, So back up the Melissa Meyer, Melissa Myers, who's just an impresario maven of global business at this point, running Yahoo goes on the record and says she doesn't like the hold music at Yahoo. Yeah. So you're thinking this is my opportunity. This is my shot, right? This, I is, had, this is me I, walking up to Kanye with my demo tape on the street correct. corner, right? That's what this is. And you get in your head, I'm going to write a song. And of all the people, I'm going to call <laughs> 1990s white rapper legend, yes. 12 Inches of Snow himself. I was like, who do I know that's like somewhat recognizable that like, I will quickly play along. And I was like, it literally was just under my nose. And I was like, oh, snow. And we were like, you'll run hold, hold at a Yahoo. <laughs> and it was like this like ridiculous thing. And, he gave, and I like tracked it and I, he sent it back. And then the next day, our PR team uh, put it up on SoundCloud or something with like a little video. And um, out of nowhere, it got like major news pickup. And Marissa basically commented on it going, oh, much better or something like that. But it opened the door for us to like actually get into business with her. But something as simple as like my party trick of being able to have to like as a jingle person, being able to get someone's attention in 10 seconds or less has carried me through so many like key moments. It's not even just that. Like that's a that's a perfect example of it. But like later on, like when, you know, WME they were, they acquired our business in a year where they like acquired like fucking a hundred businesses. And by writing a song about the principles of the company, like another rap song and delivering it to them as like a gift at the retreat. Like I somehow became like the pet, like best friend of like the entire executive ranks there. And I was like, this is just going to make my life a little bit easier because we're going to be on the radar. People like music. And I think there was also like a little bit of like, who does this guy think he is? Like trying to like come into the music department here. Like we run music to, and you know, it was this, it was just like a great icebreaker and it turned into um, a party trick for me. That's like served me well over and over and over again and in my new business, you know, doing these like musicals that we've been creating in the podcast space, getting talent on board by being able to like give them an example of the thing they're going to do later it's just like in the reality TV show world doing a great rip or doing like a sizzle or something like that. But it's, you know, many times the prototype for me becomes the actual thing. Okay. So I want to get into the whole origin story, man, because I've known you for years, but, and, and I think other people have just known you from afar, right? They see you at real screen walking around with your jumpsuit or you might have your 10 gallon cowboy hat on, <laughs> right? Or you're hosting parties or hosting a bus party or whatever you were doing back in the heyday of real screen. But give me the origin story. Like, where did you grow up? What kind of kid were you? 
Were you like in a band in high school or were you like in your room listening to Weird Al and Dark Side of the Moon? I was, it's funny, people who know me are like, wow, your life is like crazy. You know, if you see where, you know, we're set up right now is the most bizarre eccentric setup ever. Like my studio and my house here is like, during COVID, we moved into this like crazy castle in Mandeville Canyon that's like on a five acre property with music studios everywhere. But like, I literally always tell people the person I am now as a 44 year old adult is the same exact person I was when I was eight. And my mom can verify that. She's like, you literally never changed. Like the only thing different was that like, she's like, we were really worried that you were like a moron and you'd be living with us forever. And I said, to be honest, I had the same thought. It could, it was like totally binary. Like I meet wacky people like that are, you know, compra, uh, are composed of like the staff here, uh, whether it's at this company or the previous one. And these are people that like, it could have gone either way. Like they're going to be like busking on street corners and living with their parents or like highly successful in this very bizarre corner of the entertainment business. And, you know, we are sort of like, uh, uh, you know, like a halfway house for extremely creative people. You know, we have, um, when I was growing up, I'd sit in my room and I would drop funny pictures, like spend and like a ton of time. I wasn't good at art, but just like drawing weird things like spaceships. And then I loved music. So I would listen to Weird Al and Pink Floyd and Genesis. So um, Genesis, huh? Yeah. But I mean, I, when I discovered, uh, you know, I think a lot of people of our generation, I was born in 77 when when Nirvana and Pearl Jam sort of hit, uh, you know, in my world, I was that was another one of those moments like Weird Al where I was like, these people are like weirdo nerds. You know, everyone thought that it was the coolest thing in the world, but I somehow but connected with that music and was like, oh, I think I really want to do that for a living, even though I didn't play music at the time. Hmm. And then, um, so you're a teenager at this point. You didn't play music. I didn't. I, I actually started playing drums just because. Uh, I went to a high school where, you know, all the kids there were like stoners. And in order to like socialize with these like people I met, they weren't, you know, cool guys. They were like, you know, just weirdo hippies that were into like fish and Pearl Jam and all the bands I mentioned. And in order to socialize with them, I had to have some form of way of communicating with them. And that became at first drums and then later guitar and then bass. But when most people in high school are thinking about like, what am I, where am I going to go to college? You know, am I going to be a lawyer? Am I going to be a doctor? I never, ever thought about those things like ever, you know, and that's, my mom would be like, what are you going to do? I'm so worried. Like, what are you actually going to do for like, I was kind of oblivious. I, people have those like nightmares where they show up the last day of school and they're half a credit short of graduating. They have to like stay an extra year. And that actually happened to me. And my mom was like, how did this happen? All your friends are going to get half a year off and go to Europe and you're, and it's just because I did, I was so absent-minded and I was just very focused on like, instead of signing up for this like bizarre credit system of like, history and math and science. I somehow missed it because I was- playing. I love you said this bizarre credit system, meaning like the system. The system, yeah. I was, like, I was learning how to like, you, you know, shred on the guitar and play Hot for Teacher by Van Halen. And that was where I put all my energy into. And then that scared me because I, I was like, man, maybe this, like there should be more to it than just trying to do music. And when I finally went to college, I discovered that I really liked storytelling. It wasn't just- the music side of it, I put these two disparate things together. And at the time that storytelling came through interactive media, which was brand new. So I always say I went to school to learn how to learn. You know, I went at a time to study, you know, I guess what would be the early days of internet and media studies. And, you know, did you go to some special arts college? It was just like, yeah, it was like, I went to university of Western Ontario. Like it's very, Oh, you're Canadian. Yeah. It's very unnotable where I went, but it was the first Canadian program that focused on, oh, learning how to not be a coder, but figure out how to use enough HTML to make a website or, you know, macromedia director to make fun, interactive things. Like I didn't become an expert at like anything, but I learned how to use like early version of like Premiere, early, and then later early version of Final Cut Pro. Mm -hmm. And I became just really adept at like, communicating with technology. So like, what are the three things you need to learn how to do in like Pro Tools or in Final Cut? It's like, well, you gotta make something play. You have to learn how to lift something up and then you have to learn how to like transition. And eventually, you know, as someone who's not a tech savvy person, I enter into the world of media after 
um, undergrad and then going to grad school at NYU as like this kind of a whiz kid with early days of how to plug in a computer and get video editing stuff on it. And I ended up, you know, getting these weird jobs at heavy.com. They laid off 60 people the first day I was there. And if heavy.com, if anyone Googles it, they were the first place to put like video on the internet before yeah. broadband existed. So they're like, Hey kid, do you want to, you know, make a TV show, go in Times Square, film it, edit it and make all the music for it. I was like, hell yeah. So like by having, you know, a lot of people were entering into entertainment being like, Oh, I'm going to be, an executive or I'm going to develop things, right? I was just fucking making things. And it was, some of them were not great. Some of them were pretty funny and out there like man on the street. And it was like this like fearless moment where I had come from doing this shit in my basement or in my garage for so long that I was like kind of, again, oblivious to the fact that I needed an outsider's opinion or it had to be good or bad. I was just making weird, weird things. And uh, the people I worked with there Every single person, I'm still, this was 2000 and 2001 and 2002, is either highly involved in the world of unscripted television media or is a film or film director, like very, very, very successful people like Krista Liney, who ran History Channel. She was my first boss there. Dave Carson, who like ended up, you know, becoming this like massive media guru. He was my boss, Jesse Corwin, who used to work at Jingle Punks, his boss. Conrad, who now works at Page Six, a bunch of people who like run huge motion graphics companies for TV and film were there. But it was sort of this like incredible moment where right before I got there, they had all this money. And I learned a lot about entrepreneurialism through the people there because overnight they went from, hey, we got $45 million to fund this company to we're laying everybody off. And that used to spook me and keep a fire lit under my ass my whole career being like, you're literally three days at any moment from going bankrupt and having to shutter your dream. And yeah, I think that as I progressed from heavy.com to going to Viacom and becoming an avid editor, you know, I started out with like those weird, I love the 90s shows, cutting those things. Like uh, you're in wait, you're an actual like picture editor. Yeah. I started before jingle punks. This is all leads to what actually was the genesis yeah. of jingle punks. So but by the way, before we get there, the Canadian connection makes sense now because, of course, you point out the Martin Short book. Out of all, yeah. the, books, out of all the books I have behind me, of course, you pick out your fellow, fellow Canadian. I'm sure you were a big uh, You Can't Do That on Television fan, too, yes, as a kid. Yes, it was. Alanis, that's where she got her break. Born in 77, Canadian kid show. So good. So good. All right, so you were an actual picture editor, but as you're going through your 20s and you move your way into Viacom, in terms of music, are you still... Oh learning more and more in in terms of like instrumentals and whatnot? I showed up in New York and I like, you know, uh, the apartments obviously are tiny there. And I was, you know, grew up in the suburbs. So I'm like, oh, I got to get my drums out here. I'm going to be in a band. And I'm like, next thing I realize, it's like, if you have drums in New York City, you're definitely going to be in someone's band because nobody has drums. So I ended up linking up with this cool guy, Mike Story. We were in a band called the Izzy's. I literally balanced my time between thinking I was going to be like the next Strokes of the White Stripes, like opening for every band you could have ever imagined. Like if Jet was in town, we'd open for them. If Franz Ferdinand, the Kaiser Chiefs, it was that 90, early 2000. That Jet Jet debut album was incredible. So I was like, I was the guy, the the editor, and I'm sure you know the type when you're working with your, your editors who shows up with the instrument and you're like, man, I bet you they're going to have to leave today and go to a sound check and like not come back. So I was kind of an unreliable, I was incredible at editing, but I was fired by every person, you know, like Matt Sharp, like you just every person, like to this day, like when Jingle Punk started, I had to do an apology to her. Cause I was like, man, remember I wasn't great at like the thing you hired me for, but now I'm doing music. Um, I got fired by literally everybody. And then out of nowhere, this lady took mercy on me named Michelle Amore and she was the executive producer, producer of Chappelle show as I'm sort of progressing up the ranks. And she's like, you, she's like, are you a fan? I was like, I'm definitely a fan of Dave Chappelle. And she knew that every time they hired me for something, I was also trying to hustle my music into content. And she's like, Oh, to get it in the show. Yeah. And I would be like an MTV and for no reason, cause I had like insane chutzpah. I'd be like, Hey, you know, my band you've never heard of, you should like use it as the opening credits on this like big MTV. They're like, are you crazy? They're like, this is a time when like 
before production music when you could still use Coldplay or the Strokes or whatever right. you wanted. So it's like, hey, you know, like we're in the mix. We're like kind of like them. And That's so funny you say that though. Like, I don't think if you go back and watch like the early 2000s reality shows, like Newlyweds and The Hills, like that, the MTV era, people probably forget just how much pop music was in all those shows compared to what's in there now. There was a pact between music labels and Viacom to be like, we're a gateway to discovery. Right. And when Viacom stopped doing that, it, uh, this is the turn. This is like being able to recognize the, the signs on the road or the tea leaves and read it. I first went, Hmm, music and content's getting harder and harder. So I should make more music to figure out because people are caring. I was getting less resistance every time I said, Hey, use my shitty band that you've never heard of. By the way, my band wasn't shitty. And Jesse would be like, why do you call it shitty? We are good, but um, nobody knew about it. So it got easier and easier. And then out of nowhere, I'm on Dave Chappelle. The day I get there, Michelle goes two things. She goes, A, it's like something crazy just happened. So just don't be like pushing your music thing. And I said, well, what happened? I get there. Dave Chappelle had quit the day I got there. Oh, you so, came in and that you came in that. I came into that. And I'm like my dream job. And then Neil Brennan, who I interviewed yeah. for my podcast a few months ago, walks and he goes, Hey, who are you? I said, Oh, I'm Jared. The idiot sent me here. I'm like, your new editor he goes, okay, cool. Don't touch anything. Don't do anything. Don't be on your phone. Don't, don't do anything. And I was like, okay, I can do that. I don't do anything. Got it. And he's like, seriously, if I see you on your phone, I'm going to fire you. I'm going to throw you at the fucking window and, uh, and I'm going to kill you. Like he was so crazed. Cause his like, that was like, Oh, Dave Chappelle leaves $50 million left on the table. Every you know, the show's right. He didn't want the story to get out. So, um, I'm there for months and he's like, don't do anything. Don't I'm secretly wait months. I'm there for months. I'm doing what? Nothing. So I would sit in the room and he'd open the door. He goes, what are you doing? I said, nothing. He goes, got it. You're still here. He would fire people because they'd be editing the shows. Dave had left after a few skits were done and he was like, don't touch anything. I want it to be completely preserved for when we're back in business and Dave comes back. Dave never returned, but I was quietly removing music from the roots from the show and putting in my music. And I was cloning at night the hip hop music and the sound of like that early 2000s hip hop with like they, you know, a lot of artists were sort of getting like weird about, oh, if Dave's not part of it, take my music out. Um, and uh, I- So you started doing soundalikes. Doing just like vibes. Like I went into, at the time, logicking with a buddy of mine, Luke Kaiser, who is just, now he works at Westbrook. He and I would just do these like cooking sessions where we'd make hundreds of beats, like not 10, not 30, like hundreds. And just like drop them on a hard drive and I would organize them. So I basically got a few music, pieces of music in there, left. Months later, I get this royalty check. I'm like, holy shit, this is what I got to be doing for a living. <laughs> so around the same time, I go and I'm working the midnight shift and like the lowest point of my career on Whack Pack Bowling for Howard TV. And someone goes, hey, can you find a track that sounds like uh, Reservoir Dogs? And I go, oh my God, why can't you just type in Reservoir Dogs and find a piece of music? I run out of the building like I've just discovered, you know, electricity, meet my business partner two days later. And that became the genesis of, of Jingle Punks. It was a music was available and free for the first time ever where anybody who had a laptop could make stuff. I rolled up a huge amount of my old music. I think we started Jingle Punks with 5000 tracks. By the time I left, it had 500,000 tracks. Holy cow. Um, we did a searchable engine so that people wouldn't have to go on those Fakakta drives. Like I remember the biggest barrier to entry was someone dropping a brick off at your Avid and then hooking it up. And then uh, my business part of the time was like, there's this thing called the cloud. I was like, I know what the cloud is, Dan. <laughs> and he's like, people are going to start using it more and more for, for everything. And uh, I was like, so we won't need hard drives. No, we won't need hard drives. And uh, but did you know how to do that software development? We kind of, believe it or not, I hold two patents now for the way that music is searched and discovered and distributed for American television. So anytime, any of, uh, and it, the patent took years to approve. So by the time I was done with the business, when we sold our business, it was a technology offering. The music and the royalties were the bundle of what it was all worth. Um, you know, and I do have a mug that says, my, that has my patent number. So uh, in case anyone around my house forgets that I'm a genius, Hey, just, yeah, no, you just mentioned your house, right? In case anyone forgets the yeah. the, the, the the lord of music walking around in his bathroom. Yeah. You also have like a, a shitload of kids. I do. I How many kids do you have? Five children. Yeah. Uh, they are uh, 
they're incredible. In fact, you are crazy. <laughs> carpool becomes like a scavenger hunt when you have that many kids. Uh, yeah. So like you're in New York, you're starting the company. Where is this rest in like your marriage, first kid, yeah. all that? So the first business actually coincided with uh, this divorce that I had had from my first wife. And um, basically their whole life of like watching their dad go from being like kind of a goofball. Like I was really broke, broke, broke when I started the business. Like, you know how it is like, paycheck to paycheck in New York kind of thing where I'm an editor and I'm trying to put it. I also wasn't, aside from the Chappelle show thing, I was a highly uh, mobile editor, which meant I was getting dismissed from jobs a lot. I was great at winning jobs, but not staying there. So, so I get it. So the mug is actually to show your first wife. Yes. <laughs> hey, check this out. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I'm, I went from the Lower East Side from having like an apartment as big as like half the size of this room here to two employees there to I like, you know, 10 employees to 15. It happened very quickly. And I remember those early jobs, people kind of made our business happen almost by accident. You know, Lauren Escalin, who's now like big wig over at Truly Original. She was like, yeah, I'm leaving engaged underage. Like we have this show, like you know, it's not a big deal. It's called Real Housewives of Atlanta. Do you want to do the music for it? And I'm like, sounds cool. Yeah. You know, I made 200 tracks to this day. All the music you hear in Real Housewives of Atlanta, that's my music. And then some guy, Mark Portner's, you know, hey, I work at this company in Canada called Cineflix. Uh, we have this show. It's not, it's nothing. It's called American Pickers. Do you want to do the music? I'm like, yeah. And then Krista, who was my boss at Heavy, goes, there's this really fucking weird thing, Jared. You're going to think it's stupid. It's called Pawn Stars. Can you just like make a song that sounds like, you know, uh, uh, I think it was ACDC. And I was remember having this binary moment of being like, I have to meet my friend at a bar in an hour, or I can do this and be like a few minutes late. I made the Pawn Stars theme in literally 20 minutes. I went, and I yelled, Pawn Stars! I sent it to the network in the morning. They're like, mute your vocal, it's approved. And just Okay, that's it. Mute <laughs> your vocal, but the, the, the <laughs> everything is fine. The instrumentals are great. Yeah. So they the track goes in. All of a sudden, that show blows up. To this day, that track which we owned, you know, most people when you look at a Kanye West song, you just go into Spotify. An average credits on a Kanye West song has no less than ten writers and like eight producers on it. That song, not not to toot my own horn, is one writer, one producer. It's me. And we were the publisher on it at peak earnings when it was, I'm going to say 2000, let's just say 2012 or something. That song earned more money than Desposito, a global smash earned on radio and being a huge hit because of how prolific that show was. It was in 40 territories on hundreds of times a day all around the world. And at one point, like I got a call from ASCAP who collects royalties and they were just like, who are you? Like, like, what is this? It's like, oh, I have a company called Jingle Punks, blah, blah, blah. They invite me to, it must've been earlier because I got invited that year to the ASCAP Awards. And I'm like, what's an ASCAP Award? And I go there and I'm like, holy shit. It's like Hans Zimmer and Trent Reznor and Randy Newman and like all these crazy names. I'm sitting at the table like a moron. I'm like Googling what to wear. I had like con chucks on and like black pants and I, Jack, these people are dressed up like it's the Oscars of like their industry. Oh, God. And I, they go, and the winner of most played television underscore of the year is Jared Goodson. It's like, -na 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 -na. and some asshole at my table goes, the songs don't even mixed or mastered properly. And I'm like, <laughs> You're like it's I, not. I was like, what's mixing? What's mastering? Like, <laughs> I, these were like things that didn't occur to me running a music company that you should know. I thought, I thought you were saying that to like sound smart. Like, what is uh, mixing? No, you're no, literally. I literally didn't know what it was. My team had to tell me later on because I was kind of hurt. And I went back and Jeff Peters, who still works with me, he's like, yeah, Jared, there's like a process like before you send your song off that you want to have it like have some sort of specs you know, like, so it doesn't hurt people's ears or blow up the TV, but those drums are like rotten sounding. If you listen to like, it's like, yeah. and uh, if you, you know, it's funny what editors did with a song like that at the end of it, you know, just like signal the song was over. It was like, and that ends up in all the episodes at the beginning as they're transitioning from the song to first level of dialogue. And I'm like, see, that was intentional. That's like my signature that all my songs will have a weird drum outro thing. 
Oh, oh, so, okay. You're building this huge company that mm-hmm. is serving a, a clear white space in the industry yeah. as licensing deals get more expensive and people could use original music. And you are, because again, I don't think, obviously like, this podcast is for the people that just work in unscripted television in our business, but that doesn't mean that everybody knows the economics of how the music end works or did work when companies were allowed to actually do original music in their shows and, and build their own library. So explain what the pitch was as you were working with the production companies, like working oh. with Brett Montgomery on Pawn Stars, like yeah. what was the sell to your production company partners? Oh and then what was the benefit of Jingle Punks financially? So the early offering was, hey, we're going to solve a problem, which is you have lots of music that you need to fill into your shows. I will combine giving you for one price as much music as you can eat, like a buffet. Plus, I'll customize some assets, the theme, like 20 originals and, you know, just throughout the course of the year, a refresh. So it was like this like combined offering. What we didn't know was that at some point, unscripted television was going to be the whole process would be owned by the networks. There was going to be no more you know, pick your graphics companies, pick your music companies. It's like mandated. So as they were sort of organizing the principles of the world of unscripted TV at like the A&E level or the Bravo level, we hustled around town at first meeting uh, with networks. And then we realized that that was sort of like an aimless pursuit because the production companies had some, you know, pull. And then Brent, who, you know, I did the song for Pawn Stars, actually came through the network, not through Brent. And then I was trying to get meetings with him for months and months and months. And he was like, fuck off. Like, you know, like, and then one day he's like, fine, you've broken me down. Come in. So I come in and he's like, this guy, Jared, you know, he'll, he'll tell you, he's like, he thought I was crazy. Cause like I, he was on his way to becoming this like huge trajectory and people were kind of intimidated. I was like, Hey man, I was like, fuck this meeting at the office. Let's go to dinner and like have an awesome night. The night we went out, I almost like killed his like uh, number two guy there. We went out and had picklebacks in New York. We, you know, Brent, who's like a pretty important guy. We threw him in the trunk of a cab because there wasn't enough room. And like, he's like, that was fun. And at the, you know, it was like, people are just people like, you know, they want to hang out. There's no like secret sauce to that. But we said to him, Hey, we can white label what we've done for our business and you can own your own library. Just take the money that would have been earmarked for any form of audio production, spread it across all your shows, and you know we'll own it 50-50 with you. And by the way, in our library, we'll redistribute your music back into it. And you know, someone on Bravo working on their show will be inadvertently making you money because the royalties that are being earned off of the Pawn Stars library, whatever it was, left field li- uh, library, is going to be a permanent asset in our collections. So, right. So, right. So the, the idea was give us the money that you have marked for music in the budget and we're going to do originals for you and we'll split the royalties and the quote unquote back end of the music. That's right. 50-50. Yes. And so you're now making these collab libraries for all these different production companies, but these production companies are also owning now their own music in the shows this doesn't happen so anymore, it, but, it, but this, this was, it was an incredible time. Cause then we would go through cue sheets and be able to show them, Oh, see all this. Like we called it back of the cab publishing. Cause we threw Brent in the back of the cab, all those <laughs> facts that say back of the cab he owned with us. So yeah. we, for, you know, the same way they talk about the music business is like one margarita recoups all the lemons, like eight writers on Desposito 20. We now had our vehicle built, which was, we're going to utilize unscripted television while the, the sort of window is open to build this massive publishing empire. And the fun full circle thing of the what would Weird Al do of like, you know, trying to, you know, it's not a sexy way into the music business. We're not writing Abbey Road or Let It Be. We ended up selling our music publishing company for more than the Beatles sold their initial publishing in their like, you know, in a, right. at a time when nobody knew what their, these things were worth. The, for for the record, you know these our business was comprised of that a ninety ten rule. Ninety uh, percent of all the value of our assets came from ten percent of the assets, maybe even less. The rest of it was just a huge amount of stuff. And we live in this like huge amount of stuff universe now, where one of our biggest competitors after we left this company like Epidemic Sound, which is like royalty free music, they raised money at a billion dollar valuation because there's this new universe of people creating content who are like video game players on Twitch or Instagrammers and they don't want to hassle with like getting their music like notices when they use popular music. 
So we kind of got to the party early in terms of like a rights universe of just needing massive amounts of stuff, which brought me to this new business I'm in, which is, you know, the podcast universe is as disorganized as unscripted television was in the early days. We have somehow fallen into what I believe is probably the largest media shift ever of dollars in, in our lifetime. You know, the internet and then unscripted television and then television on the internet and then streamable content. The amount of money circulating around uh, digital audio, whether it's at Sirius XM or Spotify or Apple, is insane and like nothing I've ever seen in my lifetime. Like people think of audio as like the free thing. You know, it's like, what are songs worth? What are podcasts worth? What is subscription-based businesses like Spotify or Sirius XM worth? And it turns out these people are all gearing up for like content wars right now where they need to have the best content the same way that A&E and Discovery and NBC needed the best content. And much like digital video, every brand, every person we're talking to right now is like, yeah, we have a bit of money to do something in the audio space. So we're, it's the same story all over again for me, you know, where NBA teams calling us up instead of saying, can we have a jingle? They go, can you create a podcast about, you know, called beyond 28 for the golden state warriors, where you talk about black history, but instead of, you know, 28 days out of the year of black history month, it's called beyond 28 and it's hosted by this, like, so these are like work for hire concepts, much like we got paid to do work for hire. And then mm -hmm. we have all this ownable IP that's also supported by like, we're creating the proto musicals of the future. So last year at Halloween, we you know had a few days where we're like, eh, why isn't there like a Rocky Horror Picture Show for Gen Z millennials? We had Machine Gun Kelly, Ian Dior, 24K Golden at the height of COVID, you know, coming here to record their VO. And hey, you're not just gonna act, it's only gonna be like four but hours. <laughs> Oh, I had to ask you because I I went on the audio up website. By the way, go on the audio up website website, everybody, because it is a lesson in how to construct your company sizzle. Because <laughs> you're narrating the whole thing. It's a fantastic animation, but most people that they have a sizzle for the company, like my my sizzle for Main Event Media, it's yeah. like, hey, look at all the cool shows we've done with like music in the background, you know, and you're just looking at credits, right? Yeah. It's just, it's just credits and a bunch of sound ups, right? Yours is in an eight minute sizzle. I'm going to tell you the whole story yeah. of how this company came to be, where, where the white space was and where we're, where we're going. And I'm going to also give you education on the state of ad dollars flowing to audio. It's a fantastic company. Real Thank man. You. Thank you. It's, fantastic. it's a little bit of that weird Al stuff where it's like, you got to tell your story and you got to like, the amount of time I realized that COVID was going to be for better or worse. And, you know, a game changer for the whole world. There was going to be a reshuffling of the deck, like never before, much like how, you know, I came into unscripted. I think that in a weird way, my gift isn't making, you know, the best songs in the world or best stories. It's finding the moments where it's relevant to do that one thing. And by having a sizzle like that and having that ready to go, as we were a starting the business, selling shows, raising money, creating stuff. I no longer had to do, you know, the thing that I used to do, which was leave the house and go to Craig's and tell the story one at a time. We utilized press, PR, the idea of what was happening with podcasting being a hot space and, you know, a decade plus of relationships in television, you know, someone like Lee Metzger, who was my executive on The Voice goes, oh man, you know, like, I have these rights that I, you know, that are about to expire on a Stephen King project. Do you think you'd want to do something in podcasting? I was like, if you have Stephen King for a podcast, you don't even have to tell me what the story is. I can sell it tomorrow and get us upfront dollars from iHeart. And he's like, well, let's take our time. I was like, no, as I left the meeting, I called iHeart. I said, you know, do you want it? And they're like, how much? And I just made up a budget. And they're like, yeah, we'll take it. And then I called them back. I was like, you better like be able to like, we better do this because we just sold it. And, you know, it was a little bit again of like chutzpah timing, but the Stephen King thing, as we planted a flag on premium scripted, premium musicals, premium branded entertainment, it started to look like a company. Like it was mostly in my brain day one, I wrote down on a whiteboard 50 titles of things I want to do. And, you know, now we are year one and a half or almost two into the business. And, you know, having a throughput deal with, you know, Sirius XM investing in our business and them having a thirst for this content, having a relationship with Audible, which then flywheels out to like Amazon and Amazon TV. Our goal 
it's kind of like what we did with music is to be holding the IP of the future in a bag. Like, where is the next Marvel? Where's the next Disney characters? And I was like, maybe these come from, you know, propping up tentpole audio content, you know, at a time when everyone is doing really great stuff with talk and documentary and all that stuff. I was like, who's doing premium scripted and where does music play in any of this inherently audio medium? And we were the first podcast to ever make like the front page of podcast uh, discovery on Spotify and new music Friday. So like the DSP worlds touching each other going, you can discover the podcast and the soundtrack, like anything that's been done before, like the dirty dancing soundtrack, Top Gun, the movie Titanic, the days of like that ultimate synergy when media companies were essentially owned by former, you know, music publishers that came from like the Lower East Side of like the early 20th century. Those days are gone. And these businesses, the synergy of understanding how multiple things work in the core center of the business, the businesses got too big. And it's very hard to figure out how, how they all sort of tie together. But, the, but Jared, the key though, right? Because what, what I'm looking at the slate and yeah. just the announcements that are public, you know, and Stephen King, you mentioned, I saw an article the other day that The Weeknd invested in audio up. You know, Anthony Anderson's on one of your podcasts, Rosanna Arquette, and of course, Dennis Quaid, you've done multiple projects with now. Yeah. On the outside looking in, it looks like, you know, podcasts, you know, are almost like YouTube videos. You yeah. know, like everybody in their garage, and I'm pointing at myself, yeah. can do a podcast and it's out there, but will anybody find it? So the key is to break through the clutter, obviously having strategic partners that can put real marketing dollars behind it, brand dollars behind it to market it, but also the talent, right? You need the talent to drive awareness. Am I, am I right or wrong there? Like how important I mean, it's has literally, talent been? It's at the exact same time we were starting. It's like a tale of two companies. I saw Quibi uh, coming down the pipeline and I remember thinking, man, it's a cool idea, but it's not going to work. And, you know, the big story was that, you know, uh, Jeff Katzenberg had a folder of all the relationships that he had. He would show it to investors going, see these people. I know these people, Steven Spielberg, The Rock. And I was like, congrats, man. We all know those people. Like <laughs> we work in entertainment. Everybody knows those people. Like, and they don't have some allegiance to you because you're Jeffrey Katzenberg. They have an allegiance to being discovered, being heard, telling stories and being making money. So like, our ability to, you know, when we were previously owned by WME, I realized there was no, you know, there was no magic sauce. It was like, if you have something cool for someone to do, they will most likely want to do it. And the idea of like breaking through the clutter and podcasts, like, like, you know, there was people who were making YouTube videos in the early days of YouTube. And then there were people who were like making things that were seen by billions of people because they were treating it like a media business and mm. figuring out how to build brands and sell you merch and, you know, Mr. Beast, you know, creating, you know, concepts that were bigger. And I, you know, I thought, okay, we're not influencers. We're not this, but our defendable position is I can get a musical made where I have Machine Gun Kelly sing a song that I wrote and produced and be able to own that. And that's valuable. And then 24K Golden or the fact that labels were sort of like scratching their heads going, do we really want to put our talent in podcasts? Well, we're not going to do it, but let's let Jared try and fail with our talent. So being able to get Warner, Sony and Universal to not only give us talent, but fund or partially fund concepts with us. Like Uncle Drank, my little Dickie of country character. He's like the goofball who invented spring break bro country. I went into Warner Music to meet the chairman uh, or Tom Corson, who's like, number one there or number one, him and Aaron run the building. I remember him just looking at the deck because I wanted him to invest. And he goes, Jared, can I ask you a question? He's like, you worked with Little Dicky. Um, what's the dumbest thing that you have? I said, oh, it's Uncle Drank. I played him a song called Handjob at Happy Hour by Uncle Drank. And he just goes, you're not leaving the building till we sign that. And I like out of a movie, like went down the aisle, met with the business affairs person and this A&R guy. And they're like, let's do a deal. And I left the building. I was like, yeah, we got a record deal for a fake artist for a podcast that doesn't exist. But that funding ended up, you know, generating the scripts. I then used it to like fish around for more talent and like, that album, you know, the podcast and all of it coming up this summer, that was a two-year endeavor that started with another one of those sizzles. I showed the sizzle, Uncle Drank was in it, and they're like, we want that. That's stupid. That's, you know, inventive. And they're like, if we're going to take a shot on podcasting, let's do it with something that's like ownable on the music side. And, um, you know, what I've realized is that the 
conversations that we're having with everybody from MGM, who's an investor, to Netflix, to Amazon, is they all go, hmm, you know, what is a podcast, Jared? And how does it play into what we do? Mm-hmm. You know, and I go, well, there's this smart list, you know, world where it's really talented people talk and huge audience follows, and then it's advertising dollars, or there is, you know, let's create the next nightmare before Christmas for, you know, times of year with right. these weird rituals that can be promoted with brand dollars. You know, when we do make it up as we go or Halloween and hell, we're not relying on that CPM dollars the way a YouTuber is. We're relying that some brand goes, I want to own Halloween and I want the implied endorsement of Machine Gun Kelly every Halloween to go into Snickers or Mars Bar and going, we want a million bucks. Like, and you can run your ad in what we're doing. We're working with this incredible company just announced called Grover, consumer electronics company out of uh, Europe. They want to reach our audience. You know, it's not the biggest audience in the world, but we're one of the few podcasting businesses dealing with like, Phase Clan gamers, uh, rappers, you know, kids that are big on TikTok. And so we're jumping a big digital fence to bring people who have massive audience into a medium that has much smaller of an audience. But when it works, it's very, very good for direct uh, consumption of brands. You know, if you're listening to the full 45 minutes and remember in serial is like MailChimp, MailChimp actually saw performance marketing go through the roof. Right. A billion people checked out serial. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I was talking to a piece of talent the other day and I was like, who inspires you the most? And this person caught me off guard and they were like, Childish Gambino, Donald Glover. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why? And they're like, because he doesn't aim to just make a movie. When he makes the movie, it's an album that is inserted into the movie and it's a whole 360 experience. And then when you go online and go into his website, there's like Easter eggs and like undercover clues that he never tells fans about, but like five years later, they discover like hidden tracks it's from albums. Thing. It's right. It's a fully immersive 360. And that's, that's what audio up is. Like, as I was watching the thesis video, that's what it is. And, and bear and banjo is like great example and prototype of that. You created these fictionalized, this fictionalized band that is like, I, this is just my outside audience perspective. You're just over, that's, it, it was it was like the Forrest Gump band of like like blues and rock and roll like of a past era that is unearthed, and you're listening to like these archive of this band you created, and you created all these tracks to go with it. So it's a narrative podcast, and I'm listening to the podcast, and I'm like, shit, there's so much writing, like there's so, there's so much narration and dialogue. I'm like, there's a ton of it's writing so like, immensely like wide and deep it's so I'm, i love it that you that you caught that because it was the most difficult way to ever set up an album like yeah. let's record music and then like use your imagination and like hey dark side of the moon it's going to take you on a trip we literally had instructions of who these people were to the point where it's like a novel accompanying a, an album oh my god it was, but it's like, it's like, but you have like three story layers because yes. you have like the person that the, the, the uh, professor who's like unearthed it, yes. they have their whole story yes. layer that you're literally hearing on top of like the archive layer. Yeah. And it, it's so deep. And I'm like, who wrote this? Because this is like, <laughs> this is some deep ass writing. <laughs> it was like, Honestly, it was, I had a lot of, I put, it was kind of for me, the genesis of how to, you know, do the meta world building thing, you know, Jimmy Jelinek and I, who's my chief creative officer here. And I, I know Jimmy from, from back in the day at Electus, we, yeah. we had done projects together. Yeah. Jimmy's, Jimmy's Jimmy a mad, Jimmy's a madman story in his own, in his own part of the universe. He's amazing. But I basically said here at the center, I was able to verbally explain it to him because he's kind of fucking smart. Yeah. And at the center of it all is Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, let's assume in my world that he has invented everything in the 20th century that we know of and that white music, black music is all filtered through him for for one specific reason at one specific time. And these two guys are on a collision course with him. In order to get there, here's 10 books that you have to read in order to unpack the levels of stories about like the American crime syndicates of the 20th century, the old weird America, the dusty road that brings you to country music the and how Dylan factors in there. There was a fire, how Jews and African-Americans you know, partner up to invent a, a part of the music business in the early part of the century. And then Woody Allen and Zelig and Forrest Gump and the rest of this stuff is like floats above it. And Jimmy's like, 
got it. And he was mind reading with me. I sent him like a 75 page short story on who Baron of Banjo is. I just one day like was having whiskeys at home and read the whole thing into my phone, used Trent, the transcription service. It was a total like mess. And it had everything in there from like who these guys are, how they met. And it, it was not a terribly difficult story to tell because I had lived it with Pooh Bear. You know, Pooh Bear and I were, you know, a black guy and a Jew walk into a rodeo to write a rodeo song. What happens? You know, and he and I, you know, actually wrote the theme song to pro bull riding. And we show up and it's like, everyone's wearing the red hats, the make America great. And Pooh Bear looks at me and goes, what the fuck did you get me into? I was like, hey, there's a buck in it. We're going to write the rodeo song. And like to us writing music for like the last place team in baseball with the Marlins. And I was like, these stories existed for me because I've probably existed back then in a different form as like a music publisher trying to rub two nickels together and make a dime. And that's real. And then the talent. So it's like him and I, and I'm like, dude, follow me through America. And we're going to like, I will get your talent and my ambition to where it needs to go. So all I did was pull the story back into a much more fictionalized version of it. And it was weird how many people resonated, you know, with just the sort of Rosetta Stone of our business. Cause we always say that our company is doing history remixed. We have a project with Sun Records coming up where, you know, how many people want to hear again, the story of Elvis recording the song, the first time we're Johnny Cash, we've seen it, we've heard it. It's not going to be all that interesting. So we have a really cool premise with that. We're working with Jimmy's old IP at the Playboy interviews, you know, 60 years of conversations. And that's going to be a really, really interesting and big one for us. But, you know, for us that you're right, like the layers of like, would it just be easier if I just put out an album? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) No, it wasn't, it wasn't that, it wasn't that. It was the, the, uh, the amount of narrative in the podcast and how deep it went. I was like, this is, I, I was just thinking of the manual labor put into the writing of those scripts. I was like, this is, this and was a lot of work. It's really not built for that at this moment. Like it's meant yeah. to be more immediate. It's meant to be like, yeah. Hey, well, you know, listen to me, have it. Like when the guys from smart list do it, they, they're like this, they plug in the microphones. They're they doing it on their lunch break. Yeah. Paul McCartney calls in, Hey guys, you know, this high road, let it be. it's, it's an immediate medium, except for when it's not, that's yeah. really, you know, and, it's, I think uh, for us, we it's weird being five minutes early to the party because we are seeing fiction as a growing category. We think that we're good at it and, you know, going to be, you know, leading the way, but more people are catching on and it's cool to be, you know, able to say again that we were, you know, unique and did something, you know, when the whole world's going this way, Weird Al goes over here and that's, you know, that's, you know, pretty much where I am in the story at this point. We, uh, we just finished raising money. Uh, we have a pretty aggressive output schedule for the next year and a half. So we're, we're excited. Dude, congrats, man. And thank, thanks for doing this. I know how, I know how busy you are and I you're running an audio. It. My pleasure. You're running an audio empire. You were gracious enough to come on my poor man's uh, real screen show. So I appreciate it, man. I love real screen. I love you, man. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. And uh, let's find some stuff to do soon. Come by. I want to show you the space. Thanks, dude.